The George W. Bush Presidential Center recently welcomed a very special guest, the first First Lady of the United States, Martha Washington. Mrs. Washington shaped our country and the role of the First Lady in the 18th century. The nation builders at Colonial Williamsburg, like Catherine Pittman, who is actually here portraying Mrs. Washington, work to ensure her impact and those of other key historical figures live on today through engaging, well-researched, and historically accurate experiences. Host Andrew Kaufman spoke with Catherine, who, as Mrs. Washington, talked about her experience as the First Lady in a newly formed country, the hardships and joys that come with public service, and her important role in post-revolutionary war politics. There is an old adage in Williamsburg in particular that no piece of legislation has ever been passed through the House that has not been passed around a dinner table first. <laughs> and that was my strong suit. My husband might have been the general on the battlefield. I was the general over the dining table. We also discussed Catherine's passion for history and her journey to becoming a nation builder at Colonial Williamsburg on this episode of The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. This is a little different. We are joined today by the first First Lady of the United States of America, Mrs. Martha Washington. Mrs. Washington, thank you for coming to the Bush Center today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not the best at history, but I, at last I checked, the first First Lady hadn't been here for a while, but we are glad that you're here. So we're go- we've got some questions for Mrs. Washington. The, the war is over. You're, uh, you know, as I understand it, where are you now? Where are you hanging out these days? Well, it depends. Uh, The presidency has moved first from New York to Philadelphia, of course, with about a three-month recess in between, wherein we were able to go home for a time and reassess exactly what the role of the president's wife would be. Although I'm very honored that you call me by First Lady, because that is a term that I will not know in my time. But I thank you for coining it for me. I, I, you know, I, it's like I'm seeing into the future. I thank you. <laughs> and so, okay, so you're, the, the role of First Lady is one that we at the Bush Center have long been interested in because we are good friends with the, with the, uh, with the First Lady. She's not the 43rd First Lady, but the, president, the wife of the 43rd President. So tell us about your role as, first, as, as the wife of President Washington, though you, you might not be known as First Lady just yet. Well, I appreciate it. You know, the presidency was rather difficult for our family, owing to the fact that we were the first, um, the only example that we as a country had had of anyone leading over us at that time, of course, had been the king and the queen. And of course, at that time, no one wished for us to emulate that. We had a necessity to be Republican, representing each and every soul that had just elected my husband to the highest position that this new federal government afforded. But also, we did have to have the weight to be taken seriously as the leaders of an infant country to the crowned heads of Europe. And so in order to be regal and Republican, it was quite a dizzying task. And admittedly, uh, no one could quite understand how to view the, as you call, the first lady, I again appreciate that title, or indeed the first family. Um, And I will admit, I did not attend my husband at his inauguration. I waited. I did not wish to be a burden to him, as I understood that it was a public duty that he had to uphold. And so I arrived to New York about a month into my husband's term with my grandchildren. 
And the people of that place were very kind. They greeted us with great pomp and circumstance, arriving to that first presidential mansion on Cherry Street in a gilded carriage with much pomp and circumstance. Although I very quickly learned in those early days that I was, in fact, to be used as a prop in an elaborate piece of political theater. For not a week after settling the grandchildren, uh, I was escorted into the parlor of that mansion where I was informed that a committee of gentlemen, to include my husband, as well as the vice president, has sat down to determine what the role of the president's lady would be. Mm. Of course, this was quite contrary to me because in my time as my husband's wife, we had always been equal partners in everything we did. And so I had an expectation that that equality would remain. Although in this meeting, I was informed that I would not be allowed to accept private invitations nor dine out. I was told that I would be hosting a weekly reception and a bi-weekly state dinner. I was told who would be at my dinners, who would not be at my dinners. And I was informed by my husband's secretaries that they would be kind enough to draw up the invitations to my dinners. How helpful. How helpful, indeed. I believe it was at that point that I asked that I, too, receive an invitation to my dinners so that I might be more a part of the process. But these gentlemen truly did not know quite what to do. They had, of course, spent years dreaming of and crafting what the role of the president would be in the function of government. But they did not know what to do with the man, much less the wife, that accompanied them in person. And so it was a rather trying time in trying to decide what to do. And I will admit to you, there were one or two times in the early months of the presidency where I did write home to my niece telling her that I felt like a state prisoner. A, a trend that has, that has continued over the years for the, for the First Lady. That's quite a shame. However, what you said something interesting in that, you know, you had the gilded carriage, but we were not to have the king and queen as we did in England. What was your role in making sure that you weren't seen as a queen, but as, as what we will later know as a first lady? It was very difficult because, of course, the newspapers did not aid in this. I was in the newspapers uh, at the same time criticized for my queenly drawing rooms and court-like levees, and yet in the next sentence called to homespun and dowdy to represent this country. And so it was always a delicate balance that we were seeking. Um, learning from the past, obviously, and what had been established as precedent as far as what our society expected from those in power, and yet also forming this new idea of what it meant to be an American, um, but from our own lived experiences. My husband and I are Virginian, and therefore we did things the way we had been raised. Of course, we had extraordinary experiences during our lives, uh, that an ordinary Virginian would never expect. Uh, we, we hold the Marquis de Lafayette as one of our dearest friends. But we had to take all of those lessons that we had learned, both from our childhood and then through the extraordinary years of the war that we had lived through, and assess it, which oftentimes people do not have the benefit of doing during their lifetime, but only after. And, but we were forced to do it during our own lifetime in order to begin to understand how to define what this new role for America would be. You mentioned the war. What was the war like for you? You know, it is interesting. I found myself very useful during the war. Um, I traveled to be with my husband at all of the winter encampments. And so thus, of the eight and a half years of war, I was by my husband's side for five years of it. 
But it was during that time that I found myself the most useful to the country because I was able to do what I had been trained to do, which was to manage my husband's household, which might sound rather um, casual. But in effect, during a winter encampment, which is when I would attend him, the fighting had died down, but the politicking had not. Hmm. And there is an old adage in Williamsburg in particular that no piece of legislation has ever been passed through the house that has not been passed around a dinner table first. (laughs) And that was my strong suit. My husband might have been the general on the battlefield. I was the general over the dining table. (laughs) I think, uh, I bet Mrs. Bush would say the same thing. I think from seeing this estimable lady, she and I would get along very well. I, I, I believe so as well. So now it's 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 the second term um, of of your husband's presidency. Um, well, it's three years in. Do you, are you do you have any? Do you, are you going to advise him to run for a third term? Absolutely not. <laughs> Why? Um, you know, we did not wish to take the first term. Hmm. We had retired after the war. Uh, we had gone back to our estate, to which had been decimated from the war. Thankfully, still standing. But uh, the fields were in ruin. We were uh, experiencing a severe drought followed by a harsh winter. And we had just begun to turn the estate around when we were called to public service once again. And, you know, it was not even the election that told me that my husband would be pulled back to public service. It was, in fact, when he agreed to become the president of the Constitutional Convention. Because that entire convention was crafted and the entire role of the president during that convention was crafted for my husband Mm -hmm. with the expectation that he would take it. Not the choice, the expectation. But my husband and I truly did believe that he would only serve two years of his first term. The country would sort itself, and we would be able to retire. Mm -hmm. That did not prove to be the case. And then, of course, when Mr. Jefferson so kindly told my husband that the duty was not finished and he would be needed for a second term, that is the one word that will encourage my husband to do anything, is to call himself to a sense of duty, which I will never fault him for answering the call of his country. But it was extremely challenging for our family in the second term of the presidency. Um, And by the end of it, we had all become convinced that it was best for the family and best for the country that we step aside. And so we did just that. Do you have any any regrets about what turned into a life of of public service? What an interesting question. You know, I've been pondering that quite a lot, that if I was asked to do this all again, knowing what I know now, would I do it? I have always felt... And this is beginning when I married my husband in January of 59. He was a retired colonel, recently retired, two weeks retired from the late war against the French and the Indian. But I knew the man I was marrying. I was marrying a man dedicated to his country and impressed with a sense of duty. I've always understood the man I married, a man whose duty is to the country. My duty is to him. And so thus, if we were called once again to sacrifice our privacy for that of the public, I have every belief that we would do it all over again. And so, no, I do not feel as though we have regrets. Every moment in our life has been built on the one previous. 
And while I had every intentions of marrying a farmer and living as a farmer's wife on his old family estate on the banks of the Potomac and living quite a uh, quiet life wherein I would not be remembered for anything except that, if this country needs the Washingtons, then we are more than happy to serve. An amazing, amazing story. Mrs. Washington, thank you so much for, for spending a little time with us here today to tell us your, give us your perspective on, on America's earliest days. My pleasure. Well, and, and now it turns out that Catherine Pittman has wandered into the room, a nation builder with Colonial Williamsburg who portrays Martha Washington and is here for our Engage at the Bush Center presented by Next Point event tonight where you're going to be bringing history to life. Catherine, that was that was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. And you know, I, I sound startling like Mrs. Washington. <laughs> the, the, you're, a little bit of the accent is gone. A little bit. Other than that, and, uh, we did a quick costume change. No, we didn't. Uh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> for, first thing, so to paint the picture, uh, Catherine is here, dresses Mrs. Washington in, in a uh, what looks to be very finely tailored outfit that looks very warm for Texas in uh, September, it where it's silk. still in the 90s. <laughs> it's very thick silk, in fact. <laughs> Can someone get the AC turned down here? For, <laughs> let's make her more comfortable here. So while I was doing that, it, at, at the beginning, it was a little weird. And then within by about question two, I really felt like I was actually talking to Mrs. Washington because your, your answers were so natural. And they, the cadence wasn't like I have to think into someone else's shoes. Is, did it take you a while to get to that point, and and how how did you how are you able to turn that on and off? Well, it it has. You know, I I've been with uh, the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation for twelve years, eight of them as Mrs. Washington, and you know we spend almost as much time when we're not speaking to the public in first person uh, researching. Mm-hmm. reading their words um, out loud oftentimes because you really get a good sense of, of their speech patterns um, in that way, but really immersing ourselves in the history. Um, and throughout the eight years of portraying Mrs. Washington, um, she has come more and more naturally, mm-hmm. but it's through constant practice, constant engagement with guests um, you know, using all of those spidey senses that we as interpreters and historians and actors and all of the other things that you have to kind of combine into one, reading our audience um, to really utilize this teaching method um, to greatest effect. It really, it really does bring it to life, but it, I think it takes a special person to be able to do that. What's, what's, what's your background? Well, you know, um, my background as far as um, schooling is I do have a degree in theater and history. How perfect a fit I is that? I know my dad wanted me to take math classes all throughout <laughs> college, and now I can say, Dad, I'm using my whole degree. Exactly. Who can say that? I know. <laughs> um, and I always had a love of history. I specifically always had a love of Colonial Williamsburg. Um, I am from Raleigh, North Carolina originally, and so it's just a hop, skip, and a jump up there. And my parents are both historians, not by trade, but by, through hobby. And so we would always go up to Colonial Williamsburg. I loved it. Um, and so I went to college, graduated, did, did the New York thing, because that's what every young actor wants to do is to move to New York. Sure. It was fine. I worked professionally for about seven or eight years. And then I really wanted to move back home. And so I ended up getting a paralegal degree, which that was completely, you know, left field. We that's all have fine. A, left, a left turn here. And there. But, you know, I'm not going to lie. My brother is an attorney, and I was just talking to him yesterday. He's a little bit of an actor himself. But, <laughs> um, 
But I got a great job in a law firm, and then I saw a posting for actors at Colonial Williamsburg, to which I had not seen before. They had started a new revolutionary city street theater program. And so I was intrigued. Why not? It was a slow day at the law office, so I applied. In typical 18th century fashion, it took about a month for them to get back to me. <laughs> and they asked me to come up for an audition, and so I did, and I was, I was able to get this position. Um, and it's just been, it's, it's been wonderful. Colonial Williamsburg, um, we have all different sorts, all different backgrounds. We have um, colleagues working 18th century trades, archaeology, museum, curatorial, acting, you name it, we got it. But we all have a deep desire to fulfill the mission of that place, which is that the future may learn from the past. And we all do it differently, but we all are very... Um, passionate about what we do. So it's just been, it's been a joy. It's been a family, really. And so for those of us like myself in Texas that aren't too familiar with Colonial Williamsburg, you mentioned the mission. So is it a, is it a, a place you visit for the day? Is it out in the community doing programs? Tell us more about Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, yes, and, which is the most actory answer I can give you. <laughs> uh, Colonial Williamsburg is um, the largest living history museum in the country. It is a reconstructed and restored 18th century city. It, uh, it, it is a mile long and about a half mile wide. Our two uh, foundation points is the, the reconstructed capital, which was there in the 18th century, where, and of course, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and all those fun guys would hang out. And then on the other end of town is the College of William and Mary, hmm. uh, the Wren Building in particular. And everything in between is either original to the time period. We have 88 original buildings. Amazing. Or reconstructed on the original foundations using as much archaeological findings that we can. And almost every building is open as a museum site. Uh, to go along with our sites, we have uh, working 18th century trades, which are maintaining um, some skills that otherwise, other than at Colonial Williamsburg, would be ex extinct. One of my dearest friends is an 18th century tensmith, which you just don't find those much I don't anymore. I know what that is. She works with ten. Huh. So making cups, making canteens, they were very important to the army in particular. Um, we have blacksmiths, we have shoemakers, you name it, we got it. Um, and then of course on top of that we have the living historians, which are site interpreters who interpret the sites, as well as our museum theater department, which is what I'm a part of, wherein we embody the community members of the city, um, as well as larger figures like the Wa Washingtons, Jefferson, Madison, etc., but all of them have ties to Williamsburg. It's an important mission. So uh, tell us more about, you know, why this history is so important to you. And you mentioned so that we don't have to repeat the past again, but, but more, more importantly, like as you see kids come through, like what are you hoping they get out of this? Well, you know, uh, children, they're our, our, our best audience members. They're the ones who need to come to the museum. Um, they're the ones whose minds are still being made up mm -hmm. as to the type of human being they're going to be. Uh, so many of our children nowadays are seeped in social media, what TikTok tells them, et cetera, et cetera. But when you can have them come to a museum and specifically in our unit, engage with Thomas Jefferson. And like you, within two minutes, you forget that you're talking mm -hmm. to an actor. It is Thomas <laughs> Jefferson. Right. And to hear his words resonate with the children and even you know anyone of modern day it shows you how relevant our history is how important it is to continue to see what the foundation of this country both the good and the bad 
so that we can continue to have a deeper understanding of what our shared history is. How much, you mentioned a little bit the, the practice constantly on this, uh, but the his, how does the historian side of you get to play a part of this? And what have you learned about Martha Washington? What have you learned about yourself while doing all of this? The historian side of me keeps me in check from the performer side of me. Um, oftentimes, as an interpreter or as a performer, you have a tendency to want to make your person the good guy. In mm-hmm. everything that they do, yeah, the heroine you want to be or the, the yeah, hero exactly. of the story. Come in and save the day. Right. And we have um, in our field what sometimes we call interpretive drift, wherein you say the fact the first time and then you kind of, you might say it slightly different. Oh, and that felt good. And so you kind of just kind of keep going down that rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And so the historian, which is equal parts, is the one that's constantly checking right. that person um, to understand that. These people are humans. Mm -hmm. They have good days. They have bad days. They have good decisions. They have bad decisions. They also are products of their time, um, which is not an excuse, but um, it is something that you have to always understand the context of what they live in. And so it's a constant balance of making sure that you are the most truthful with the history that you can be. Um, And also to continue to to make them relevant, but... um, yeah, to stay true to to what the fact actually was. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think we see we're in a we're in a phase right now. I think as a country where we are looking at every at re-examining everything. Absolutely, and, uh, as we should be. Mm-hmm. It is it is important to go back and recognize people's flaws yes. and gifts, and that we wouldn't be here as a country without the amazing things that people like Martha Washington and George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson did. But that at the same time, they were flawed people. Sure were, and. And that we can we can revere them for their for their talents and their gifts while also saying, okay, that that was that that element, for example, of George Washington owned slaves. He did. That is, you know, we can now say that uh, definitively that was that was a flaw in his character. Yes. However, we can also learn from that. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's too easy to take these national icons and either vilify them or deify them. And we have seen specifically the Washingtons used as that in every century, in every campaign cycle, mm-hmm. and every, you know, every president has used George Washington or Thomas Jefferson um, for their political benefit. And that was something that I think the Washingtons in particular understood that that is what was going to happen to them, mm-hmm. which is why they were very careful with what they allowed to be preserved. For instance, their private writings don't exist Interesting. Mrs. Washington. Now, we don't have, you know, anything that said, oh, I sat with Martha while she burned her papers today. But <laughs> right. it is understood by in scholastic circles that she burned all the surviving correspondence between she and her husband. And this wasn't an uncommon thing to do. But you think now what a treasure trove that would have been. But she did it, in my opinion, to preserve this public figure that the Washingtons already by their death had become. Right. And so they kind of gave themselves to the country in a lot of ways, but understanding that they would constantly be used by this back and forth. And so it's our responsibility as historians and first-person interpreters to embody, as you say, the good things that they did, but also mix it with everything else that made them that flawed human. And interestingly, I think we still see that with presidents, you know, throughout of where, you know, part of your life is given up to, you lose privacy, you lose, um, people like, oh, it must be so cool to have Secret Service follow you around. It must be really weird to have Secret Service follow you around all the time. All the time. And, 
and, but it's, it's an understanding of that is what public service is. How, do you worry that not enough people or not, not perhaps not enough people or not the right people are getting into public service these days? It's interesting right now looking at our political landscape as to who is getting into public service, who is being elected into these very public mm-hmm. um, roles, because our government should always represent the people. And it's interesting who our people are now representing to right. represent them. Right. And uh, it's, it's a question that I think we all have to ask is, th- is this what our society is now? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think politics has always ebbed and flows. There's always been geniuses. There has always been not so geniuses within it. Uh, but we as a country right now, I think, are in a very interesting position where we're kind of refiguring out who we are for this next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of an interesting time for all of us to live within, but especially those of us who work <laughs> right. in history, yeah. because we've seen it throughout all of the generations. Um, and it was even there in the founding generation mm-hmm. as they were figuring out what it means to be an American. So I don't think we can answer that question yet. Mm-hmm. We have to wait until we figured ourselves out again. And we will. Um, it might not be what our parents expected us, or even what we currently expect of our society. But I think we're, we're in a state of change right now. I think so. So finally, we always, we always ask folks this kind of at the end of our interviews, but uh, we'll ask this one with a twist. We usually ask, what, if, what has no one asked you that you wish they would? But instead, let's ask, what has no one asked Mrs. Washington that you, Catherine, wish they would? Oh, man, I have been asked everything under the sun. Everything under the sun. <laughs> um. Let me think about that. Because no, no one asks them more. No one asks questions more off the cuff and honestly than kids. So I'm sure you, you work with every day. They have no filter. No, none whatsoever. Um, you know, I think the it, it's it's interesting portraying Mrs. Washington because not only do I need to know her history, but I need to know George's history too. Mm-hmm. Because I'd say probably 75 percent of the questions are about George Washington. Which I think I did. No, and, and, and it's, it's to be, I understand exactly what it is, and so it's always very enjoyable when Mrs. Washington gets asked things that typically would be asked of her husband mm. because she was insanely smart. She managed her husband's political or public career exceptionally well. She protected her family. She protected her estate. Um, and she maintained as much privacy as she was able to during that time, almost to the point where she erased herself because she was so good at her job. Um, so I'm not quite certain. Um, I always appreciate when people accept that and pull her out of the shadow that she put herself in. Um, and I think we do that very well at Colonial Williamsburg. So I'm not certain because, again, I've been asked... <laughs> Everything. <laughs> if you can think about it, I've been asked it. <laughs> well, I, it's it. You know, we all know that that President Washington was a key figure in history. Thank you for reminding us that Mrs. Washington was as key, if not maybe even more key. Oh, thank you. Where would we be today if it wasn't for Mrs. Washington? I That's think is right. a a very a good question. And, and Catherine, thank you so much for spending this entire day with us here at the Bush Center and, um, you know, sharing your talents and, and your love of history with everybody that's going to be here today. Thank you so, so much for that. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Let us know what you think at the Bush Center on your favorite social media platform. Thank you for listening.